0: And so if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 5 and uh, verse 21. F- chapter 5, verse 21, uh, through to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter's dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years was there. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And when, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead. They said, Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He didn't let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house, the synagogue leader saw Jesus, when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. (laughs) Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. It's a brilliant, vivid story, but I wonder if it's worth just picking it up at the moment where Jesus arrives at the house of the synagogue ruler uh, whose little girl, 12 years old, has just died. When he gets there, he's met by the people in the house the commotion in the house is wailing and there's a whole bubble and sort of babble of noise and ferment. When Matthew tells a story, he says there were people in the house with flutes playing. And what was going on was um, what has happened in cultures all over the world is professional mourners were in the house. That's who they were. People who came to help a family mourn and they would come and they would do their mourning professionally. It's normally been women who've done this. In Ireland, I was reading about in Ireland, they have women who keen, which is a great word, isn't it? The keeners come and they just pour out their own emotion. And Jesus meets all of these people And um, it's around verse 35 in the passage we've just read. Jesus was still speaking. And some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue uh, leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And then the next verse says, overhearing what they said. Overhearing. Uh, There's two ways of using that language. And depending on the version of the Bible you're reading, it would be either overhearing or ignoring what they said. Jesus said, don't be afraid. (coughs) This little girl was 12 and they brought the mourners in and they knew exactly how to deal with this situation. Because people die. And in cultures, 12-year-old deaths is not uncommon, unfortunately. We know how to deal with death. There's a writer who was writing novels in the 1950s called Flannery O'Connor. She also died very young. But in one of her novels, she writes about a Christ-haunted preacher who was trying to run away from Jesus. And he decides to set up a church. And it's a church where the blind don't see. And the lame don't walk. And what's dead stays that way. I'm a member in the preacher, he says. This (laughs) preacher who's trying to run away from Jesus. Who says, I need a church, but I'm going to have a church where the blind don't see. And the lame don't walk. And the dead stays that way. Jesus comes along to these people who were mourning and he says, actually, there can be a different ending here, an ending that you wouldn't expect. Another writer called Philip Yancey, who's a Christian writer, both of them were Christian writers, he, writing about Jesus in the context of Easter, said, In many respects, I find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. And I think what he means is that because an unresurrected Jesus is kind of like kind and compassionate and misunderstood and the underdog. but But he did show what it means to love. He goes on, Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. And this is the line I love. Moreover, Easter means... He must be loose out there somewhere. (laughs) I love that line. Easter means he must be loose out there somewhere. You see, an unresurrected Jesus, we can sort of keep in the pages of an old book and go, oh, he said some wonderful things, you know. But a resurrected Jesus is far more disturbing Because we live in a world where what's blind stays blind, what's lame stays lame, what's dead stays dead. And most of us have come through life working out. We know how to deal with those situations. They're tragic. But we know how to deal with the disappointments. We know how to deal with things that don't go right. None of us really expect anything to be different. We can deal with this sort of stuff. And then Jesus comes. And Mark tells a story of faith on desperate days for two people and says, this is what faith looks like. He starts out with that story of a synagogue ruler. It doesn't really matter, but a synagogue was more than a church. A synagogue was like the community hub in any village. A a synagogue was where you'd put Um, your archives, your local archives. It was where um, details of marriages would go. It was where details of laws would be. Uh, It was very much more like a sort of a mixture between a town hall and a worship center. The synagogue was at the heart of every little village. And Jairus is the synagogue ruler. And he's got some standing in the community. And Jesus... Jesus is is really a kind of an itinerant teacher. He doesn't belong to a synagogue as such. He doesn't belong to one of the schools. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not one of those parties. He's kind of independent. He's wandering, wandering around, healing people, preaching stuff that people are finding quite disturbing. Mark will tell us much earlier in the gospel that when he's been preaching, some of those parties, the Herodians and the Sadducees, get together and they go, this man is dangerous. We want to we kill him. We want to take him out. Because Jesus is kind of a disturbance to the existing order. I say all of that, that. You might get the picture of what does it take for a local official who's got standing in the community to go and fall at the feet of an itinerant rabbi who everybody thinks is dangerous? How much does it cost you? And what, what would make you pay that? What would make you lose your dignity? Because it was like that thing of, you know, Mark says, Jesus comes and kneels at, at Jesus' feet. We would think that odd now. In those days, that was really, really odd. What, what would give, what would make you pay that price when you know that everybody else is watching on? Well, your 12-year-old daughter would, wouldn't it? If you have a 12-year-old daughter who's really, really sick, you'd do anything. That would make you pay the price. 12-year-old daughter who looks like she's about to die, you don't really care anymore what everybody else thinks of you. Because this matters. And so the way the gospel writers tell the story is vivid, and it feels like eyewitness stuff. Because as Jesus is making his way to the house, there's a whole scrum of people around Jesus. They're all pushing in on him. It's kind of like that... You know that picture you get of, of loads of people just wanting to get close to him. And on the sort of outskirts of this little scrum, there's one woman. And I do see her as a short woman. I see her as someone, because uh, we're told, who's for a dozen years... Has lived a roller coaster of hope and disappointment. Because she's spent all the money she's had, she's spent on doctors. And doctors have always been saying, well, this will work, and then she's tried it, and then disappointment. And so she's she's tried again and and the disappointment. And the, and the problem with the woman is the, the medical problem is that she's she's hemorrhaging all the time. She just can't stop bleeding. It's intimate, it's personal, and nobody can stop her bleeding, and she can't stop bleeding. And you might know this, but what makes it worse is anybody who would touch her during that time of menstruation would think that they somehow were unclean. (laughs) It seems odd to think of it like that. but in a Jewish way of thinking, it's, it's that sort of, it's, that, that was the way they thought. That actually, if, if you're you know, at the time of the month and, and you touch someone, then, then you're unclean. I don't know why they say this next bit. It's kind of like a bit irreverent. But there's a book called The Year of Living Biblically, written by a guy called A.J. Bre- Jacobs. And this guy tried to say, I'm going to try and live a whole year according to the Bible. And so he, um, he, he just sort of took all the Old Testament laws really seriously. Like he'd stone certain people with very small pebbles when they weren't watching because he thought that they were adulterous. And, um, and he would sort of like he was only eating certain food and all the rest of it. And his wife, just to annoy him, because she got really up to ear with it, um, uh, to really annoy him uh, at a time of month, would go and sit on every chair in the house. Because that meant he couldn't sit down. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing you'll remember about this sermon is that. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of like that picture of unclean. So for 12 years, this lady has spent everything. She's lost money. She's lost her dignity. She's lost her friends. She's lost her community. Because everybody who sees her knows her. She's the unclean woman. And in small villages, everybody knows her. And I don't know quite how this would have worked, but just the challenge of hygiene. The challenge of hygiene. And the challenge of a woman who's in this situation, and the challenge of just, I can only imagine, I have no idea really, but I can only imagine she would have been tired all the time. And in the scrum, this desperate, desperate woman, Just says, if I can touch that man's cloak, that's my last hope. And she stretches and she reaches. And at that moment, she knows something's happened. And then the worst thing in the world happens. Because Jesus stops everything and says, who touched me? Can you imagine being the woman? Who touched me? It'd be like, I mean, you know, am I the only person in the room that would go, it it wasn't me. (laughs) The disciples are going, Jesus, don't be stupid. Look, there's so many people, they're all touching you. No, 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 this is different. Someone, someone wanted something and power went from me. I felt something happen. I felt something Went from me to someone else. It's kind of interesting because everybody else had thought that if you touched this woman, you would be unclean. But Jesus says, "No, this woman's touched me, and and she's got something of me." Uh, nobody had ever thought like that before, and everything stops. And uh, the woman has to come and go. It was me. Can you imagine how embarrassed you'd feel? It was me. She trembled. She fell at his feet. She trembled with fear. She told him the whole truth. That's a brilliant phrase. She told him the whole truth. This is who I am. This is what's happened to me. This is what it's been like for 12 years. And Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. And Jairus is standing there tapping his foot. Going what about my daughter? And Jesus says to Jairus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just trust me. Both of these people. Desperate. Last sort of ditch. Hope. Jesus says to both of them. Trust me. Have faith in me. Don't be afraid. It's not over yet. I read a brilliant phrase. It was actually in a tweet um, from a theologian this week. And uh, it just said this, faith is a declaration of bankruptcy. Faith is a declaration of bankruptcy. Faith is not where you go, oh, I've got, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem. Faith is saying, I've got nothing. But I trust him. Faith is a declaration of bankruptcy. Faith is not when you're really strong. Faith is not when you've got it all sorted out. Faith is when you've got nothing left. Faith is not when you can fix everything and you just need a bit of turbo boost. Faith is when you've got nothing and you're going, I've got nobody else I can trust here. I trust you. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust me. Trust my goodness. Trust my love. Trust that this is what I'm doing. I'm creating order out of chaos, beauty and meaning out of random uh, ugly randomness. That's what Jesus was doing. Order out of chaos, beauty and meaning out of random out of ugly randomness. And he gets to the little girl, clears out all these mourners and holds her by the hand and says, "Come on little girl. It's time to get up. Time to get up. Mark told this story to a church in Rome, a church that were struggling, a church that were beginning to feel the pressure of persecution. And he tells a story about the people who follow Jesus. And I think that as we listen to it, there's at least two groups that we're listening to here. This new kingdom, what does this new kingdom look like? What does this people of God look like? It looks like people with horrendous pasts who come together. What does it mean to be excluded for 12 years? And how long would it take you to learn to trust that you're included again? If for 12 years you've been told, you're unclean, you're not wanted, we don't want you around here. How many years would it take in a community of faith for people to go, no, you're really wanted? That's what church is like. We might not have those rules, but we've got other social rules. And church is a place where we say to one another, I don't care whether you think you fit or you don't fit. Here, you do fit. How long does it take for you to believe that every cough that your 12-year-old has will not lead to death? What does it mean to be these people and to be with these people? Watched a brilliant program last night that we recorded and then we watched again called uh, From... Um... (laughs) (laughs) You'd have loved it. Um, (laughs) Fascinating. From from the Bronx to Bradford. There's a story of Franciscan friars who've come across and some of them were American and and some of them from Manchester and from Bradford and places like that. And these people just come and they went into a, a fairly derelict church in Bradford and just started to serve the poor. And lots of shots of the soup kitchen and just the help they were giving to people and their desire to see a church come from nothing again. I was really inspired. And I said to Maggie, I'm really inspired by this. She said, does that mean you're off to John a Monastery? <laughs> she got the case down. I don't know. <laughs> um, But what does it mean to be with people who have been excluded all their life? What does it mean to draw people in who for 12 years or more have been told you don't belong here? What does church look like then? And then finally, what does it mean for us? those who are desperate enough to lose face with Jesus. Some of us, we're not the people that have been excluded, to be honest. We're the people that have always fitted in. We're the people who went to school, got a little bit of education, we fit in. People think of us as being quite uh, sort of respectable. We're not really like the the woman with 12-year-old problems. We're more like Jairus we the people who other people think have got it all sorted. Whether the people that know the struggle that goes, I'll lose face, because I'm desperate. Because I haven't got it all sorted. Because I can't solve this. And for Jairus, it was a 12 year old daughter, but for other people it's other issues that are just as life controlling. I can't solve this. And so you're desperate and you go, I don't care what other people will think of me because actually I just know that this man can do it. And Jesus whispers the word to us still, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Trust me. And I think it's wonderful that he whispered that word to Jairus, the guy who everybody else in the village would have said, he's sorted. Don't be afraid, Jairus. Trust me. Can things really change? Mark's gospel was written for people like me and you to believe, to help us believe that the story where death wins is not the final story. That the story where evil has the last word is not the final word. So may it be. Hannah, come and lead us.
1: Just feel strongly this morning that I know, I even just me, I know some people in this building today who who are in some of those similar situations that are desperate for something to change, either for themselves, or for somebody they love and they care about. And I think the, the appropriate response to, to the sermon, for, as far as I'm concerned, is to is to have this trust and put it into action this morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, somebody came to church and he was wincing, all the time wincing. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I've got this condition I've had for years. And the first thing I said was, can I pray for you? And he said, oh, why is it that Christians always do that? Why do Christians just want to pray, pray for you? The first thing, I've, people have done this for years people've done that for years to me I said oh right I'm sorry I just thought that was the most appropriate response for somebody who's a christian you know and he said yeah well you know I've been there and, and it, it doesn't it doesn't help and actually makes me feel worse and and I and I, I've not been in that situation but I can try and put you can try and understand why somebody would not want to be prayed for and maybe you're in that boat that today you've been prayed for for years for something or you have prayed and called out to this jesus for something to change for years and it hasn't happened yet but as greg said God never remember, never forgets a prayer and today could be the day where something changes. And I just want to give opportunity, if, if, there's anybody who's in that, if there's anybody in that boat today feels like they've got an issue that they they want to be prayed for, it could be a physical, or mental thing, somebody in, yeah. so just have a look around you if somebody's got their hand up, anybody else who's got somebody in their family or a friend that they really need something to change. Yeah? Okay, so if you're sat next to somebody with a hand up, or you, you, you're, would you just go and just put your hand on their shoulder and let's, while the band are maybe just playing nice and quietly, let's pray for you. Let's pray for you. Because we do believe that this is, Neil said it a few times before over this series, do we still believe that Jesus does this stuff today? That he wasn't just back at that time back then? Who believes that Jesus still does change things and change people's lives? I do. And even though it doesn't always happen straight away, we believe today could be the day for you however vulnerable that you feel being in that situation let's let's learn to trust Jesus again let's pray out anybody else who's not got anybody praying with them who wants something to change